Welcome to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? with your host, Jeff Stein. This program really does uncover the sometime myth that all are innocent until proven guilty. The truth is that many innocent people are found guilty of a crime that they did not commit. We discuss the judicial system, its flaws, and where it could be made better. Now, here is Jeff Stein. Welcome to Episode 4 of Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? There are many wrongful arrests and convictions in the United States. This show is going to address things that can be fixed and how. We will talk to the victims of wrongful arrests and convictions, witnesses, people involved in the judicial process, and try to create an understanding that our current judicial system is not truth and justice for all. Today, we are continuing our conversation with Jeffrey Walker from our last podcast because there just wasn't enough time last time to get everything in. So welcome back, Jeffrey. We're going to pick back up from where we left off during our last podcast. And one thing I I wanted to kind of circle back to is you had stated during that that podcast, corruption is the white man's game. And in, in that comment, I know you were referring to even within the police department, even among the corrupt white officers, can you elaborate on how there was racism amongst the officers and how even when large thefts were taking place, the black officers were discriminated against? Certainly. First of all, I say hello, uh, Jeff Stein. Uh, when thank, I talk about thank, thank you so much for, for joining us again. Really, no really is appreciated. Uh, when I say the white corruption as far as the white man's game, that's a, that's a, a talk that police officers, black people of color have amongst each other. Uh, they really mean the uh, corruption, the game, the system. The public normally says the gang or the beast. Uh, it's a system that is involved in a whole lot of people. It's not just the police department. It's the DA's office. It's the private attorneys and the, some of the judges. You know, everyone is working together on one common goal or one thought. Uh, when I refer to the white man's game, again, a part of corruption, I talk about a system that was developed, from far as I can remember, is institution by white people. It's a system that takes advantage of the people of the poor and people, mainly people of color. And it's dominantly ran by whites. Not to say individuals that involve themselves that are black or people of color who choose to, for whatever reason involved, whatever reason it is. But once they get involved in it, thinking that they're going to be treated equally because it's a thought that everyone collectively thinks about, they find out, like myself, that it's not equal. Uh, you become a slave. Uh, you become a pawn. You're never looked at on the exact same level. But you lose your right to talk. That's the thing, once you get involved once a person of color gets involved in a system like corruption, like I have been, you lose your right to talk about injustices within the department. It does matter, um, you know, even at that stage where you stand in that, in, in the, um, the pecking order, I guess, makes yeah. a difference. Even in corruption, he's still got the pecking order. Unbelievable. It is, uh, it's extremely enlightening, and, and I know our listeners, I'm sure, are in disbelief. So, m- moving on, can you talk about what your knowledge is of what's currently going on in Philadelphia, particularly pertaining to Curtis Douglas 
and all of the Brady violations. And and before you go into detail, I just want to give our, our listeners a brief background on Curtis Douglas, and you can fill in all the blanks because you obviously uh, are very intimate with this process. But his last stop, which I believe came to a sudden end in 2016, was at the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. And it included overseeing the office's most sensitive cases, such as municipal corruption and police misconduct investigations, which is kind of funny, um, you know, in hindsight. <laughs> yeah, Insurance of government fraud, economic crimes, and also a gun violence task force all fell under his responsibility. And having just said that and knowing, you know, what, what I know, that sounds so hypocritical. Before being rehired, because that was the second time with the DA's office, he was a federal attorney for about a decade. And then before that, he worked, uh, again, a prior stint with the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office for, I believe, at that time, the first go-around was about eight years. And then he began his law enforcement career originally as a U.S. Treasury agent, a post he held for about a decade. And what's even more interesting for, for those who don't know, most Philadelphia workers, like the police officers, the district attorneys, and and several others, they are required to live within the boundaries of Philadelphia. And it looks like that Mr. Douglas did not live in Philadelphia on this last go-around. He was living in Springfield, Pennsylvania, which is Delaware County, which again is is interesting because if I'm correct, they all have to live within the the city of, of Philadelphia. And that sounds like it's additional fraud, you know, and, and people looking the other way when the leaders in the city hall want to. And, you know, it's almost like they pick and choose. So when he was moving along, when, when he was a U.S. attorney, he failed to notify the police commissioner or any other authority about the details he knew about with regards to particularly police officer Reginald Graham. So I'm going to turn it over to you so you can fill us in on on all of the Brady violations and corruption among the prosecutors, Reggie Graham and other Philadelphia police officers, as it kind of ties into what I I just brought up in in the last um, things we were talking about in the previous podcast. So it's all you. Uh, It all starts in 2002. It was a few going on within the uh, narcotics field unit. One was my squad was the VRT, which is response, violent response team. Uh, Reggie Graham, again, he was part of corruption. He was guilty of doing the exact same things as everyone else was doing as far as the misconduct. But he broke the rules about losing your right. He felt, though, he had to go tell someone. That person was Curtis Douglas, which was a career career, uh, prosecutor. Curtis Douglas was actually a U.S. attorney uh, Philadelphia, working out of with defense. Well, Reggie and him had a conversation regarding myself, police officer Brian Reynolds, police officer Lynch Dela, and my super uh, my supervisor Chester Mikowski about corruption. And he said a various various things to him regarding of how we were handling narcotic investigations, we're not to be trusted. And you know, Curtis took all this stuff in. But what Curtis failed to do throughout the years is reported to the police fellow police department, at least the commissioner. Uh, what he told Reggie to do was go tell it to the feds. And that's as far as he took it. But Reggie still communicated with him throughout between 2003 when he approached, approached him all the way into 2008 and furthermore until 2010. Until, you know, my arrest of 2013. 
Uh, he, he actually filled him with a lot of information about how the structure of the misconduct was being performed in the narcotics union where she goes into the deputy police commissioner, uh, uh, Blackburn, and the captain of narcotics, which would be Warner. Both of these are white individuals. And how he felt threatened, because again, he was being, he felt he was being mistreated on investigations, and he feels as though he could not go to superiors to tell them, at least as far as the, this unfair treatment. Well, again, Curtis took all of this stuff in, even when the point where Curtis was still handling major narcotic investigations brought upon myself and members of my units that have been questionable on misconduct. He basically turned a blind eye. Uh, Curtis had, get, had gave a deposition uh, the month of May, on May the 14th, where, which I have read the deposition. I believe you got a copy of it too, Jeff. Correct. And, and just, just to confirm, that's, that's of this year, correct? Yes, sir. Yes. Not even a few weeks ago. Right. Where Reggie, when Curtis was asked questions by the civil rights attorneys, just handling a lot of defendants that have been wrongly convicted who were down suing the city to try to get the Monell claim against the city of the, the powers to be knowing what was going on to turn a blind eye. Uh, one of the questions that stuck out the most is where uh, they asked uh, Curtis Douglas, uh, when Reggie Graham was coming to you, telling you about theft and stealing and misconduct, what did you do? He said, I did nothing. And he further stated that it, I hadn't, it wasn't really worried about it because it wasn't affecting any of my jobs. That's a clear cut turning of the blind eye to what's going on. Curtis is a prosecutor. This is far as extension of the police department. Uh, he further stated he believed at the end, he believed all these was rumors. Rumors are when a police officer or anybody who is being approached by any law enforcement and is telling him about misconduct and criminal things, you as a prosecutor have to tell somebody about what's going on. Curtis told no one. He basically referred Reggie to FBI. He didn't do, he didn't do any uh, personal investigation of his own, even when it, Reggie still came to him when he went, was rehired by the district attorney's office and he was dealing with the head of the department of misconduct within the police department and fraud. Right. So in, in hindsight, as, as we look back, we're able to say that Curtis Douglas was informed of all these things back in, in the early 2000s. Uh, two thousand three, to be exact, who actually okay. went to Curtis Douglas. Two thousand. It started in two thousand and three when he started to be informed of things that were going on. Yes, and he and he had numerous conversations. He even had conversations with you, I believe, in in twenty ten. Yes, and throughout this whole process, he really, I don't know, he kept it to himself. He didn't, he didn't address it with anyone. No, which becomes a problem because now there's things that should have been reported in, in thousands of cases that were never reported. Is, yes. is that correct? That's correct. It, it, prior to even going to Kurz, Reggie went to Eternal Affairs. Again, we had spies everywhere. Uh, uh, when Reggie reported in Eternal Affairs of the misconduct, uh, it really immediately got back to my supervisor, and my supervisor had a conversation with Reggie. And again, Reggie was still chose to uh, 
conduct himself in misconduct and illegal activity amongst us because that was just the way of life in narcotics. But he was willing to also tell on other people, I guess, you know, I'm still trying to figure out why would he go tell someone else's misconduct and he's doing the exact same thing, knowing corruption is, is connected. You know, if you tell someone about corruption, it's going to come back on you. Mm-hmm. You know, he broke the rules. Again, it's a pecking order. You know, when people of color get involved in situations, I mean, I remember a situation where I heard the word nigger being flied around all the time, you know, and wow. I couldn't say anything, you know. Uh, what I was complaining about. I remember getting a, uh, a trophy from a, a shooting I was involved in and uh, sitting at a bar and my white counterpart, you know, he was drinking. He had personal problems going on. He looked over and called me a fucking nigger. You oh know, God. and it's these things that, you know, I had to suck up throughout the years because of my misconduct was just as equal as theirs. You know, mm-hmm. when it goes back to Curtis, you know, he's a prime example turning a blind eye. He handled major narcotic investigations where Reggie has lied, used the, the tactic of articulation. Again, it's a hidden word that police officers use to state story writing, fabricating of evidence to do jobs. And Curtis has turned a blind eye to these things, even when he has brought down, there's a letter floating around, I'll email it to you, uh, Jeff Stein, later as soon as I get it, where Back in 2003, Curtis Douglas in the FBI uh, was there with an additional prosecutor who also turned a blind eye, uh, called and got a defendant to come down to Philly. He was talking about the misconduct with a number of officers, mentioning me, myself, police officer Reynolds, Brian Reynolds, and a, a, a few other officers, even either in the narcotics division or the, the, the districts that were stealing from him, lying on paperwork. And again, this was this this meeting was two prosecutor defendant that was there and his lawyer with the FBI. And nothing was made upon that situation. And these cases that this individual was on were found to be convicted and they're sitting in jail doing time up to this point, which I'm actually doing affidavits to have these these guys either be retry or recalculate their time and uh, release. Crazy. So some of the things that were, can, can we talk about some of the things that were brought to Curtis Douglas's attention? Obviously theft, um, but it was even, it, it was even mentioned about the overtime, things that were being brought out. So do, do you recall some of the different things over the years and what you read in the affidavit that was um, reported to Douglas? I don't think too much in the overtime because that was really, as far as Reggie's concerns was, it was because his main concerns was he wanted Tommy and Brian, Tommy Fitzgerald and Brian Reynolds off the street while he did two particular cases, which is accusation of theft, at least out of one that I know for a fact because I participated in. Uh, both the big major narcotic investigations, Reggie lied on both of them. He was doing the exact same thing everyone else was doing, but he did not want Tommy Lichardell and Brian Reynolds involved in, which they actually was to a point where they were at the location when it was time to serve warrants. Uh, during the second uh, investigation, Reggie made a call to Curtis Douglas and told him, someone stole my investigation. Curtis then did nothing. He sat still. 
uh, when questions were asked to Curtis Douglas, who did you call? And he said, no one. You know, his thing was, you know, to this point, he did nothing, you know, at that time when these people coming to him. But he was still handling investigations. And as time went on, uh, back in 2005, uh, when the squad was broken up, uh, I was actually working with Thomas Isadell and a few other officers where we did a case, Mark Miller, where Tommy actually, Tommy and another individual named Palmer, Lewis Palmer misused a source of information to establish uh, probable cause to have a guy come out of his house and they were arrested him, took drugs, uh, confiscated drugs from him and legally entered his, lo- entered his home. Well, all of these things that we were doing, supervisors knew about our misconduct. You know, it was, it was common. When I say misconduct was common, it was common. It's like me talking to you saying hello, you know. And, uh, you know, it was about the numbers, you know, prosecuting people, these people at the end. If you see a police officer says, you know, it's okay to follow that gray area, you know. It's okay, you know, because the ultimate goal is locking up the bad guys. But, if you, you, you know, it was reminded to me after I was arrested and set in the shoe for 28 months, you know, we, I, you know, laws, because I was in a position now where I wanted to be uh, prosecuted fairly. Uh, Constitution comes into play in your mind, you know, and the violations that I have hit my mind, the countless violations of people's constitutions enter my mind, you know, and in the reality of uh, falling for the, uh, the conception of, you know, what the training of police work that chose us to uh, be involved in these things, you know what I mean? Like they bring the brainwash. All this comes to reality when I was forced to stop, you know, thank God of that. But um, there's still people out there that still engage in these activities because even with all this investigation going on, there's still officers are willing to steal and lie on paperwork because in their minds, it's hypocritical. I'm not going to do what they did to get caught, but eventually everyone gets caught in the end. Right. Let's let's take a, a real quick break and then we'll come back. And, and I, I want to circle back to what you were talking about when Reggie lied on the theft um, on some theft cases. But let's um, we're going to take a real quick break for our sponsors and commercials and we'll return in a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. ELPS Private Detective Agency is here to provide you with security and investigative services. Our specialties include criminal defense, surveillance, security consulting, loss prevention investigations, and more. ELPS Private Detective Agency is a dynamic team of professionals with over 30 years of experience. No case is too small, too large, or too difficult. We're licensed, bonded, and insured. Visit ELPSPDA.com on the web or call us at 877-SEE-THAT. ELPS Private Detective Agency. Fighting theft, fraud, and crime, one case at a time. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator, featuring stories and articles on current topics and issues written by professional investigators and leading experts in the profession. 
real equipment reviews from top surveillance investigators with years of experience. PI Magazine offers investigative tips and practical advice for the newly licensed to the seasoned veteran investigator. Catch up on recommended sources, vendors, and professional services. Don't miss a single issue of PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? To reach Jeff Stein or his guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or you can send an email to jstein at elpspda.com. Now, back to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? Welcome back. So we were just talking and, and Jeffrey was going over all the things that were reported and, and ignored to the to the prosecutors. But Jeffrey, you had mentioned about Reggie Graham lying and, and the first time he lied was on a theft case that you were involved with. Can you do you do you recall, can you go into that at all and, yes. and what was done, what what you guys did and then obviously how he denied it? Yes. Well first of all, that wasn't the very first time that that Reggie has lied. Uh, when the VRT squad was formed, you know, it was, it was formed by a lot of aggressive police officers who had history of locking up masses of people, you know. And then you had some officers that they were just filling in, but the majority of us were guys that were well-known throughout the, you know, the urban neighborhoods. Uh, when you come to the VRT squad with, within the narcotics field unit, these practices are traded amongst each other uh, on increasing the ability to articulate in paperwork. Uh, The bad thing about the VRT squad, it was split in half. It had a white side and a black side. I was part of the white side because I worked with Brian Reynolds, who we were working in the 16th district back in the early 90s when we were misusing sources of information. But when we, you know, after the contracts killings on our life that was foiled, we was transferred into the Narcotic Bureau. Well, I was working with other officers who had similar traits, not as far as being almost killed, but as far as high arrests and things like that. Uh, Reginald Graham was a guy, well, again, he was an active police officer in the districts, and he was part of the Narcotics Field Unit as far as the VRT squad. We first met each other. Uh, once we got to know each other, you know, that that division, again, it's a pecking order. You got the white side, you got the black side. Reggie was the head of the black side. Uh, Tommy Lichardella was the head of the white side because, again, his father, who we know, he was close to Chet. His father was a narcotics guy, supervisor, who had a taste of corruption where he used to bring, Tommy used to always brag and say, hey, my dad, when I was a kid, he used to bring home bundles of money. I hide him in the basement. I used to rip my dad off all the time. So when Tommy came into Narcotics Failure, he knew exactly what he was going to do. So, you know, the squad was divided. Now, 
I was part of the White Sox because I was the pawn. You know, I'm going to admit that. I was the pawn. I was the guy who could fight very well. Uh, I was the scout in, the, in all the, 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 the roughest black neighborhoods. And when it comes down to me to get out the car and do surveillance, I was that guy, you know. Um, I was a guy when it was time to steal something, I stole it. You know, I was, a, you know, I was the pawn. Uh, when it comes down to the black side, Reggie was the leader. Reggie was, you know, he was dealing with his CIs. Uh, I found a later that was corrupt, just as corrupt as him. Um, it was about numbers. It's about money, making money. And uh, at times we did come together. Uh, but once it got too much for Reggie, Reggie decided to go to the Curtis Douglas. First went to Eternal Affairs in mm-hmm. 2000, uh, 2002, uh, because of numerous lawsuits brought together. I think I spoke about this last segment of my uh, civil rights attorney, Michael Pelleggi. Well, Reggie felt that his name was being tarnished, so he went to Eternal Affairs, and, but they got back to us. But when he went to Curtis Douglas, successfully he was able to, Tom and Brian was able to get off the street, but I stayed on the street. I was switched at this point now to the black side of the squad, which they felt, you know, looking at me kind of cross-sided. But, you know, I was sent there to actually just work with Reggie. Reggie was a little paranoid of me. Uh, one of the particular main particular jobs Reggie did was uh, Terry Scruggs. Terry Scruggs, from information Reggie had, was given to him by a source of information that he was misusing, which that was his close friend. Uh, this guy, Terry Scruggs, a high-level drug dealer, uh, dealt with large quantities of cocaine. Now, what Reggie's situation was ultimately to arrest him. Uh, Reggie articulated his paperwork on facts of seeing individuals, this target individual, Terry Scruggs, come to a corner, drop off drugs to street-level guys, and they were sending confidential informants, registered confidential informants to make buys. But Reggie had one problem. When you deal with large-level narcotic guys, they don't drop off bundles to street level guys. These guys are distributors. And Reggie knew that. And I got to a conversation with Reggie about that. Listen, Reggie, taking a stretch to have this guy, regardless if it's true or not, dropping off drugs to individuals in the corner and they buying packets of cocaine. Well, when it came time to doing the warrants, we searched these properties. It was a it was a, it was a duplex on the second floor. We locked it. You know, SWAT was called to location. They go in first because the guy was known to have firearms. They go in and secure the individual. We go in behind them after they secured him. He's in handcuffs on the second floor. We look around. We don't see no packaging material. I bring it to Reggie's attention again. Listen, man, you cannot do this. I mean, you're sticking out like a sore thumb. Mind you, Tommy Lichardello's there. You know, he's like a, a grown kid. He's very immature. Uh, he's laughing at Reggie. Again, Reggie was always competition to him. He's teasing Reggie, saying, listen, you got a, you got nothing. You have nothing, man. You did all this investigation, did all this lying, you got nothing. Well, Reggie turned it. Reggie took the keys that was on the second floor and went to the first floor, opens the door illegally, and there are boxes of bricks, kilos of cocaine, numerous. So now Reggie has to tie in the observations of the first floor to get to the second floor, you know, basically vice versa, the, the, the second floor to tie into the first floor. This is where, if you read Reginald Grant's paperwork, how he lies and says he sees a silhouette of, of this individual on the first floor. But if you read his affidavits, it's no mention of that. 
in none of his paperwork. You know, these are the things Curtis Douglas should have picked up on that, that never, you know, again, he turned a blind eye to the situation because it was emotional that, that you know, uh, that defense loss. And these should have been brought to Curtis. Curtis knew by reading the affidavit, probable cause affidavit, everything in the affidavit is very important, you know, in detail. And something like that, of seeing someone on the first floor will be mentioned in the affidavit. And none of that was mentioned in the affidavit. And that alone, Reggie testifies of doing things on his days off. Now, if people can bring back or uh, find a quote that I said when I was caught by the FBI, when I was caught on the wire, where I said, I do my dirt on my days off. That's the exact same thing where Reggie was doing. Doing your dirt on your days off means you gather narcotics information outside of your work uh, performances. That means by the time you go, go back to work for your very first day, you're already ready to go. You're hitting the ground running. You know, you did your surveillances. You did your, you know, trash, illegal, you know, your trash pulls. You know, you follow people around in your personal cars. I mean, you were, put it this way, the, the way our, the VRT and a lot of guys in narcotics field units were conducting their, their activities, uh, a drug dealer would never want people like us on their, on their, on their top because you were going to go to jail eventually and sooner than later especially if they got eyes on you. Um, uh, what Dilma Reggie's situation was, he lied about the first Terry Scruggs job. Now, he moved into another individual. Uh, it was a Brockton Road. I, I can't call the defendant's name offhand. Uh, his close friend, source of information, helped him with that investigation where Reggie lied. That job we actually stole, that I was part of uh, stealing with Reggie. A vehicle, and uh, if you read Reggie's paperwork, when it comes time to after he did the art articulation and gathered probable cause to do the warrant, we wanted it to do the warrant. Uh, it was two vehicles on location. One parked out front. The other one was in a garage. The vehicle that was in the garage was locked. No one had keys in it. It was an individual inside the house on the second floor, which we had a warrant for. That individual was arrested. Uh, the vehicle that was in the garage was taken to. Our, it, was, it was actually told to our narcotics headquarters. Well, it came to a point uh, where me and Reggie went down and I had the halogen, which is a, actually a long prying tool. And I actually, with Reggie standing alongside of me, trying to get into the trunk of this vehicle. Well, it's in January, it's cold. So I told Reggie, listen, it's cold, let's go upstairs. When we went upstairs, we stayed up there a few minutes to warm up. We came back downstairs. Uh, the trunk was now butterfly. I had butterfly in the trunk, but the lock was hard. So that's when we went upstairs. But when I came back downstairs, the trunk was still shut, but it was, the lock was broken open. So when I noticed the reg, I was like, Rez, you know, the trunk's open now. But as I look to my left, I see a vehicle moving around, you know, shaking. And it was actually Barry Clahar's van. Uh, it took me quick notice that soon as we got there, Barry Glahar and Mike Williams got out the van running past us like two little kids. I knew they popped the trunk. Well, I opened the trunk up and it's a, it's a bag full of money. I mean, it was a lot of money. And I looked at Reggie. He gave me that look. Take some. I took some. I took a bundle, gave it to him. I took a bundle. Reggie took a bundle, reached in, took a bundle of money, and he put it in the trunk of the car. What? Why he did that, I, I still don't know why. But again... Gave Reggie the bag. He takes it upstairs. When he takes it upstairs, he walks into our supervisor's office. As soon as he did that, 
Tommy Bryant shot up out of their desk and he ran inside his office. Shut the door. Reggie comes out. He's doing his paperwork now. And at that point, Reggie feels that he was taken advantage of. Even though he stole, he still took advantage of because now he had no control of his money. When that money was given back to him, it was all, I mean, uh, like an hour or so later, the money was given back to him. It was all uh, wrapped up in uh, uh, plastic wrap, whatever, uh, evidence bag wrap, and prophecy was done. It was a great amount of that money was missing. Reggie knew as an investigator that he was going to take the blood of that. Because you go from one big pile of money to a small big pile of money, and you're the investigator. So any accusations that are made, they're looking at you. So Reggie says to Chet, there's money still in the car. Now Chet looks at, that's his sergeant, looks at Reggie saying, well, why didn't you tell me that? I just prepared a prophecy. Reggie goes down to the trunk, retrieves the bundle of money, and that money never hit the prophecy. Reggie just gave him money. So Reggie knew this. So Reggie took steps to cover his bases. He, he called Curtis. He called uh, friends he knew in the FBI to come get the money, which they can't get the money. But nothing was happening with that because Curtis was already put on notice, who at the time, again, was a U.S. attorney. He handled the case. He did nothing. He, he didn't notify the police commissioner, at least that. You know, we, Reggie uh, gave him concerns about the deputy police commissioner, who was actually the head of narcotics or the captain. I understand his concerns with that, but still, he still can go to the police commissioner. We were allowed to steal for years. And that's just not courage, knowing. We participated, I participated, was still amongst other police officers, other than these people I mentioned, including supervisors. You know, it was a time where uh, we kidnapped the guy for seven days in a hotel. He's handcuffed to a nightstand with the deputy commissioner and the captain of narcotics in and out of the room. And they made it into an overtime situation. And using the guy as a uh, source of information to call it his supplier, you know, and that individual name was ha- Javier Blanco. And a lot of that came out at the trial. But again, when it came down to the trial, people have to understand how corruption works. They have people that will work to protect other people. And that's just how it happens. You know, then when you deal with a, 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 a trial with these individuals, the jury is mainly white. They're looking at mainly dominantly white police officers. You're looking at a bunch of drug dealers and a, a person of color, a police officer that has proved to be corrupt because he was caught with his hand in the cookie jar. You're going to get a not guilty on that, situ- on that situation. So I knew that was going to come regardless of all the work I was doing, but I still kept pushing forward because I knew that was only the first page of the, of the story, first chapter of the story. So, you know, I need people to understand, you know, when an a police officer arrested for something, first of all, you got to remember, that's not the first time he did it. You know, he got, he's done it before, if you look at his jacket. And two, he ain't doing it alone, no matter what it is. You know, we, we support each other. You know, when something, you know, got the old motto is, again, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it looks good, join it. You know, if you choose to join it. You know, when a police officer caught stealing or abuse or anything, He's never alone when he's doing these things, you know. And, and I, I want to point out that Graham, that Reggie, took a polygraph test and he failed. Yes. Uh, it, that was in 2014 when I was already in, in uh, FBI custody. 
Right. Uh, they were going to use him as a witness, but they, they were caught in a situation. They were like, you know, you have two cops, one arrested, one not. They're both saying the exact same thing, but the other cop is saying that dude's still a two. That's what their dilemma was. So, you know, Reggie was still willing to give the FBI information because now at that point, my team of guys, Tommy Lichardella, Brian Reynolds, uh, Michael Spicer, John Spicer, Perry Best, and Linwood Norman was already, you know, arrested by the FBI. So Reggie feels though he wanted to put a stake in it, you know, you know, stake, you know, put that last nail in that coffin. So he went to the FBI on his own and decided to give information, more additional information of, which he did not know is the information I gave them. They were ready for. So they asked him, do you want to take a polygraph test, you know, to confirm what he's saying was true? Reggie said yes. Reggie should have known something up when they Mirandarized him. But he still took the polygraph test. And within that poly, they asked specific questions about lying on paperwork, stealing, you know, the specific questions, you know, throughout his career. And he failed every last one of them. Uh, in 2016, after I was released from prison, Reggie went to, uh, had an interview with Eternal Affairs. And what happened being, they, they went over the question. Reggie admitted he lied. But even if you describe the story that he had, he's still lying. You know, once you lie, you got to keep lying. You know, think about my situation, why I'm free. You know, you got to make amends to yourself and God. You got to say, listen, I was wrong. This is what I did. You know, what the situation is. Reggie never made amends to himself. He's going to still continue on lying until one day he's going to be forced to tell the truth. And, and even at that Eternal Affairs interview, Reggie still lied. You know, he lied about how he got, you know, how I gave, allegedly gave him money. And that was not true. You know, I split money with Reggie at the rear of that vehicle that he confiscated inside police headquarters, you know, and found out later after that job, Reggie then got married. Reggie bought a new house. Michael Williams bought a new motorcycle. Barry Clahar bought a new, I mean, Barry, Michael Williams bought a new motorcycle. Barry Clahar bought a boat. Uh, later, uh, Chet and, and Chester Mikowski and Brian Reynolds went to casinos, you know, the money I split, the little bit I had, when it was a lot, you know, when I say a little bit, it was a little bit paired to what these people have. Uh, I split it with, uh, the Chuck's father, you know, and, uh, we, he's old school too. He knows when you steal money, you don't go out and buy these things, you know, and, uh, I, I broke off what I had and gave it to him. We were the only ones that didn't really buy these slavish things or did anything stupid at that time. Uh, one of the situations. Uh, one thing I wanted to listen, listen to, it, uh, hear me out on is when both black and white uh, police officers get involved in stealing large amounts of money. You know, you can tell by who does what. Like, only with the black officers is the is the buyer, the clothes, the car. You know, the jury. You know, you can't tell the difference between the cop and the drug dealer. You know, at times, when, especially when we go hanging out with FOP. Right. The white guys normally go to the massage parlors. <laughs> they gamble in the courthouse. You know, everyone has a lavish trip. To, you know, uh, for uh, to go to either Disneyland or somewhere lavishly. You know, that everyone's houses is immaculately beautiful. Okay, but you can tell. You know, I, now I, I still joke on how the black officers spend their money and the white officers spend theirs. They both. As you get these large amounts of money, they both dwindle fast. You know, when you get anything, you know, fast, it's going to dwindle fast. So, but even with the white officers getting the larger amounts of money, it's still, it's, it's funny how you see 
who has what, but end up the exact same way, wasted, wasted money. You know, I remember going in the courthouse and we had gambling. They had I watched because I don't play poker. Gambling parties with stolen money with the white officers and the black officers. Why uh, somebody standing at the door? Why court is in session? You know what I mean? And when the DAs uh, comes to the conference room and say, "Listen, who's next officer to testify?" And they take the money off the table, and the officer lets them in. And that person who sits at the table that's gambling, he goes in and testifies. And I can tell you nine times out of ten, whatever he testifies until he lying. You know, what I mean, it's a system. It's a system that's been done very well. You know, I was asking me even today was how many narcotics cases are tainted, and I say it's scary to even even for you to even ask me that question. And this is the honest guy, true. You know, con- when I say misconduct is of the norm. I mean, me sitting and having this conversation, having a normal conversation is of the norm. Uh, you know, it's different levels of, of corruption. You start out paperwork, moving to uh, uh, brutality, and then you go into stealing large amounts of money. You know, uh, all depends on who the person is, the individual. I can tell you this, it's structured. You know, in my career, I was at the top of the sword. I was in exclusive areas with a lot of white guys of power that was stealing a lot of money. And, you know, and people ask me, well, why did you complain? Why would I complain? You know, when someone gives me $20,000 and what I'm caring about, they took out 150 out of the house. I'm $20,000 up, you know? And these are the things that keeps individuals like myself in that loop of things. Because the next go around, you don't know when the next chunk of money is going to come. You know, and not and not tell the listeners this. You know, I'm saying a lot of things, but people have to understand this. Uh, 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 narcotics, you know, the smart narcotics officer, 75 percent of the work he do is going to be good work. And sometimes towards the end, that 75 dwindles down. But you got to have it's like when still is like putting money in the bank. You have to have some good jobs in there. But when it's time to do that bad, you want to go all out. And that's just the way it is. And at the end of the result, who cares? These are people who you're stealing from who are parasites, people who are destroying the community, people who got your mom, dad, cousin, brother on drugs, people who are dying out here, uh, killing innocent people. You know, it's a time where when I was growing up, you know, those people who were getting killed were drug dealers involved in the gang. Now you got people, just innocent people just getting killed and robbed for some and any part of the whole situation with narcotics. So, you know, you have a lot of that going on. Of course, someone's going to say, you know, I don't care as long as they lock them up. You know, I don't do what you got to do. Lock them up. And, and at the at the same point, when when you, when you guys were, were robbing and stealing from from some of these drug dealers, there was also relationships with some of the other drug dealers who you guys, correct me if I'm wrong, look out for. And they got to run their corners. Right. So you guys let them. Um, you warn them, and I say you guys, meaning uh, a lot of the narcotics team. Yes, would would let them know when something's going on. When if the feds were working a case, or if you know another unit was working a case, you'd give them a heads up, and yes. then you would try to eliminate or take out their competition by locking them up. Is that right? Yes, it's the system. It's it's part of the game. You know, it's a business. You know, so you let some people live a little longer. While you take others down, you know, and uh, Tommy Lichardello was notorious for this, where we can start out with a couple of ounces of coke and we have a brick by the end of the, end of the week. 
you know. It's called flipping, you know. If he wasn't letting other drug dealers uh, live longer while they prosper and selling drugs, you know, we would catch the ones we were grabbing. We were flipping, and you can't. That's all. That stuff is illegal. You know, you got to inform the DA. That flipping means if you got him, you grab a guy, you got to notify the DA's office. They set up a proffer, and any narcotic information is given. They work on it as an investigation, a future investigation. We were flipping people left and right, pancakes, and 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 it got even worse than that. We were dealing with private attorneys. A lot of these main, see, I, I have an issue, Jeff, and I say this to you, and I say this to listeners. Lawyers to me are like tax collectors. You know, they about the money. You know, they ain't about a lot of people's feelings. We, I witnessed lawyers work. Shoulder to shoulder, working with the police officers for them to not show up for court for to get their clients' cases tossed out of court because they don't gave them some information. You know, one of which what Reggie mentions and uh, Curtis Douglas uh, mentions at the deposition was Santa Guida, Joe Santa Guida, who was actually Meek Mill's lawyer, you know. And this is this is it's so crazy. Crazy is just a mild word to say how this whole situation is. It's bizarre. I use the words bizarre because I was in my whole life from the time I chose to bite that apple of corruption has been bizarre that the people that have been involved in this situation of the world of corruption. And, you know, it's not, you just can't just focus on the cops. You, it's a whole elaborate system of things. And I know there are individuals out there listening to me right now can say that shit happened to me. You know, and, and they can't and they looking at them like they talking crazy. No, this is true. Your lawyer will give you you up. Yep. You know, at a price. Right. Now, you're you're absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head. And let's let's transition because you, you just brought up um, you mentioned Malik Mills. Let's talk about uh, how Mills? all of Malik Mills, I'm sorry. Excuse Meek, me. Meek, man. Get his name right. Meek. Don't hear this. <laughs> How does everything that we discussed tie into him uh, regarding wrongful convictions and, and his current status? Uh, he's just one of many, you know. Regardless of what he did, you know, it's just he fell into a system of a whole lot of other things that people were going through. He just was a peg in, a, in an engine, you know. And, uh, I knew that when I start when I saw his case, I remember what Reggie said, you know, it was at one of his hearings that he went to when he got convicted, where Reggie bragged about, you know, ripping his braids out. I mean, this kid at 19 years old was beat, I mean, beat severely by a group of cops that I normally work with and I stole with, you know, and I knew from looking at his paperwork, listen, a lot of what's going on with the situation, you know, I mean, when you have a, a person who the cops say allegedly pointed a gun, everyone knows now. You point a gun at the police, you're going to die. They're killing people for cell phones, uh, pagers, and, and, you know, anything that may resemble a gun. Can you imagine someone coming out of the house and literally pointing a firearm at a police officer? You're, you're not going to live. You're, you know, you're in the afterlife real quick, you know, no exaggeration on that. And I know these police officers because I work with them throughout the year. So when I knew that statement was false, it was false. I believe... When he came down the steps, he didn't want to get locked up with the gun. He hit the ground. He put the gun under the car. And, and you know, police took it personal. He got beat. 
you know, twice, you know, from my understanding, they got beat outside, they got beat inside, there's blood all over the walls, I mean, I'll let him tell you the story, because, you know, it's a, it's a gripping story that I feel as though it should come out of his mouth, because he, he was the one that, that actually went through a lot of that stuff, but I will can tell you this, regardless of how people feel about him, you cannot look at the end result of, okay, he had gone on drugs, you gotta look at how he was treated, he's among many of people, mainly people of color, who've been wrongfully convicted in the system. And what if it happens to you? What are you going to do? You know what I'm saying? You know, Absolutely. If you, I mean, this is reality of, you know, when you talk about equality in life. You know, that's, what, that's why Larry does not fall into the mold of the norm of the, the district attorneys before him, like Seth Williams, who fell into the norm. Just like he fell victim to the enticing of corruption, because he fell into a system that's been already there. He's sitting in the federal penitentiary, federal prison right now, just falling into the norm of what's going on. Corruption is very strong. You know, it's, it's something that is just big enough to control the masses, you know? And it's the right people with controls, with corruption works, it has to have that right people in the right position. Like, as far as I can tell you this, it's the police officer. You got the police officer committing the act. You got the police officer committing, uh, helping him commit the act. You got the supervisor who he's involved with him or the supervisor turning the blind eye. You have the captain who sees it. He turns the blind eye. He might be participating. You have the district attorney like Curtis Douglas who's going to turn the blind eye. Or you say they weren't about it's the stats and making money, not really making money, but, you know, get the numbers up because that's what it's about, locking people up. And then you have the private attorneys who are selling guys down the river. And then you got the judges that we know that's this, this signing the fictitious warrants. And I forget about the district attorney's office. You might be sleeping with one of the DAs in the charging unit who has girlfriends who they're looking up to. Girl, let him go. He, that paperwork good. You know, it's, it's a collective effort. It's not just the police office. It's a whole system. And then you ask me, is the system broken? You, after, me, after I said all that, you answer your own question. Well, I, I, I have to agree with you, Jeffrey, 100%. And, and that's why the, this show, the title of the show describes it all. Is there really truth and justice for all? And no. it really, it, it doesn't matter what race, religion, sex, nationality you are. Anyone could be a victim of, of um, a, any kind of uh, prejudice and false convictions and false arrests. So it, it happens to every walk of life, and our future shows are going to talk about that. Yes. And and that's um, a perfect time to transition. We have a few minutes left, so I want to talk a little bit about you have a podcast coming up, and you have a book, and you have some other things in the works. And yes. um, the name of your podcast is called Philadelphia Freedom. And our, our revolution our will be podcast. And, and, and our listeners can find it um, – once it's once the all of them are released, but there's a teaser out there, if I'm correct, and yes. it can be found at https colon forward slash forward slash phillyfreedom.blog. And the Philly Freedom Podcast is a podcast dedicated to spreading the word of Philadelphia's criminal justice revolution, the legal battles occurring in Philadelphia. Yeah, can you tell the listeners? We just have a, a, a few quick minutes. Can you tell the listeners a little more about your your podcast and who your co-host is? Yes, uh, my co-host is uh, Paul Jubilus, who's actually a defense attorney. He's working on cases that that have been wrongfully convicted uh, individuals. One, but she's actually 
just put the paperwork as a steady B uh, was actually a, a 90s rapper who was accused of being involved in killing a police officer. Uh, he's he's my uh, my uh, co-partner in the podcast. And it's, it's basically, you know, this is forming the public. You know, he's using me. I'm talking for the very first time. I'm talking from someone from the inside out. You know, I'm not talking myth. I'm talking fact. It's all the police officers who have written books and talked about situations. you got to remember this. When a police officer talks about corruption on his workplace, he has to be careful because, you know, he can fall into either turning a blind eye or participating in corruption. Okay? He's not going to give you a full story. I went to prison for three years. I suffered. You know, my family suffered. But I I could have came out of prison and just went about my way. But on personal reasons, I've turned it around and informed the public of what's going on. Since I've been home, I work with Larry Krasner, who had the blueprint of my deposition in a civil rights, uh, a, a civil civil rights deposition, who overturned at least over 1,500 cases. And the record in number is going up as freeing 4,000 people in three years based on my redemption. And I continue because I understand, you know, as a young police officer, you know, I was just enticed as the, the young guy in the neighborhood with the drug dealer with the nice car, fancy car. I, was, I joined the police force to fight crime and within drugs. I was enticed by an officer. And, you know, he made it look good, you know, because what... Crack cocaine at the time, you know, was just getting started. What was doing to, you know, people in the black community. This officer was black, you know. But as it went on, I got linked with a lot of white officers who was actually controlling what was going on. And um, it's a story to be told. Now, the book is uh, Young, Black, and Shining. It actually gives people the walk through the eyes of a street kid who came a street kid of color, grew up in West Philadelphia, around Will Smith, all them guys grew up. We were around the same age. You know, they can relate to, you know, what goes on in these urban, you know, middle-class neighborhoods. And I became a police officer. And how the walk through life of the transition from being, you know, from a Christian, strong Christian family to keeping a secret from my sister, who was also a police officer, and how it affected my personal life and the, tr- the fight of the transition I went through that was killing me. You know what I mean? Uh, was I doing the right thing throughout my career? You know, the battles I had within myself, you know, to, you know, my fall, going to prison, you know, and then my rise again when I came out. And I lost my sister to cancer in the middle of this. People can find her website, you know, if I can say this, Jeff, under yep, Karen, go Walker, right ahead. Go ahead. Karen Walker. Pink Cuff YouTube. I think people need to look at that because she was, besides God, she was an inspiration for me to do the right thing. You know, I had long conversations with her. Again, it's Karen Walker, Pink Cuff's YouTube. And she really spoke for the right of good police officers and informing them the fact of, you know, she was fighting many battles. You know, she was fighting a cancer battle and informing police officers what was going on. And she was helping her little brother get through a, a real tough situation. And she died in the middle of that. I think she Jeff, died. Sure. Yeah, go ahead. Jeffrey, I'm sorry. Like always, we go through this so fast. And it's it's so great to, to listen and hear everything and be able to share your story through your eyes. We're, we're out of time again. 
but our listeners know to listen to your upcoming podcast where they're going to learn a lot more, look for your books, listen for you to, to be on possibly some, some future uh, podcast episodes of, of mine. Um, we really, everybody enjoys listening. I know I got so many great feedback. So because we're out of time, uh, I, I just want to thank our listeners for taking the time. I want to thank you for all that you've given back, you know, after getting out of uh, the federal prison and, and trying to right all the wrongs. Jeff, like always, it's, it's great and I appreciate it and keep fighting the fight. And we're going to, we're going to overturn everything that's going on in, in, um, in the home. system. People you got it. Excellent. Everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you listen to as we continue to increase our listener base. We appreciate your positive reviews. Until next time, have a great day. Thank you for listening to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? We can be heard Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please join host Jeff Stein for another edition of the program next week. 